Well, uh, this morning we've been going through a series in the book of Acts, and this morning we're continuing in that. We'll be in chapter 14 if you want to grab your Bible and turn there. If not, it'll be on the screen. But uh, to give us some context of where we're going this morning, we need to look back very briefly uh, at the last few chapters. And uh, just before I sort of intro, I want to give us some context and position around where we're going today. But in chapter 11, uh, we saw basically the previous chapters that there's been a persecution against the early church, against the Christians, and they have been basically scattered out of Jerusalem. Uh, by chapter 11, some of them have landed in a place called Antioch, and uh, the church there is now flourishing and growing. And um, it would seem that the Jerusalem church uh, has now heard about this church that's taking place there and growing and, and flourishing in Antioch. So they decide to send their best guy, Barnabas, to go and lead and disciple this church. And so he goes there to do that. It apparently grows even more. And so it would seem that he needs more hands on deck. So he invites his mate Paul, which is the Apostle Paul, uh, just at the start of his ministry journey. This is before we even before he becomes the great Apostle Paul. And uh, we don't know how many years this church is going. There's a bit of a, a, a graph, a map of where they went. They spent some time in Cyprus in a few cities there and then in Asia Minor, which today is Turkey, um, and uh, then did it all again as they went back. And uh, what's happening in this Antioch church before they leave for this first missions trip is that this church is now flourishing in Antioch. They've got leaders, they've got teachers, I think, we don't quite know, but it looks like they've prayed in some elders. And one day they're having a prayer meeting together, and it says basically at the beginning of chapter 13 that they feel together that the Spirit of God is telling them that they need to send out Paul and Barnabas from that church to go do it again in other churches. And so chapter 13 and 14 is the story of this first great missions trip that we see up here on this map. And uh, today we're going to be looking at the second half of that, chapter 14, as they wrap up this missions trip. And I've sort of summarized it by calling today's uh, sermon or summarizing that chapter as the persevering gospel. That's what I want us to focus on this morning, the persevering gospel, because there, again and again on this missions trip, there are oppositions, there are threats, there's persecution, Everywhere they go, some believe the gospel and others don't and reject it and even try to kill them for preaching the gospel. And here's the good news for us. Nothing can get in the way of what God is doing. Nothing can stop the advance of the gospel. God is committed to his mission both then and now. People will be saved. Churches will be planted. Nothing gets in God's way. So we can have great faith that both for cities and neighborhoods and for nations and the world, God, the gospel will continue to advance against every enemy and opposition. Even this morning, the best is yet to come for Joburg. Things might get dark for a season. The church might struggle for a time. The gospel may face roadblocks for a season, but ultimately God will finish what he started. Amen? Alrighty. But that does not mean, of course, that there isn't suffering for God's people and trials for God's church. And that's where I want us to start off this morning, because it's clear in 
Acts 14. And as I was preparing for this, someone sent me actually an Instagram reel, which I'm turning into an illustration, which I thought was brilliant. And uh, it's of, I think I've got a picture up here. This is called, this is a a, a biosphere. It's called the Biosphere 2. And it's a massive glass uh, greenhouse, basically, in the Arizona desert of America. And what the whole purpose of this was, was some scientists got together and they decided to think together in the middle of a desert, right? What would be the perfect conditions for trees and plants to grow? And so they built this Biosphere 2. It's got perfect humidity it's got perfect moisture perfect nutrients everything is as perfect as it can be for these plants to grow and it's a bit of an experiment uh, to see what it would take for uh, nature to flourish in this way and after a few years uh, many years i would guess what happened was that trees would get grow to a certain height and then immediately start falling over and they couldn't quite figure out for a while why the tree's falling over. It's, it's, you know, they've got enough water, enough nutrients. They've got everything they need to develop strong roots. What's going on here? And finally, they figured out what the problem was. Some scientists figured it out. And of course, the, the reason was that they weren't actually developing deep roots. And the reason they weren't actually developing deep roots is because in this paradise oasis, look at it, it's basically a spa day for plants, like permanently. The reason they weren't developing deep roots is because trees need adversity to grow strong roots. They need to feel the wind. They need to endure storms. They need to have water uh, attempt to sweep these plants away, and it, it causes them to dig deep and to get strong. And I thought that was a helpful picture somewhat of what the church of God is experiencing here in Acts 14 and potentially even for us today. As we look at this, in the midst of all the adversity and opposition, what we're seeing here is that God's people are getting stronger, the church is growing, and the gospel advances. Nothing gets in the way of what God is doing. And so what we're seeing in Acts 14 as we work through it this morning is that It tells us the story of this unstoppable force of the gospel. If you're taking notes, we'll get into it right now. We're going to be looking at three ways the gospel perseveres in this chapter. Three ways the gospel perseveres. Um, I'm not going to read the whole chapter up front. We'll work through it section by section as we go. But the first way the gospel perseveres is that the gospel perseveres despite opposition. And uh, you see this as the advance of the gospel, it's the whole point of this missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas go on. They go to proclaim the gospel to all these cities. That, that just simply means they're telling people in those cities about the gospel, that, that Jesus has revealed himself, uh, God has revealed himself in Jesus. So we know who God is because of Jesus, the incarnation. We know that he has come to help us know God by dealing with our sin on the cross to forgive us and make us right with him, that he has risen from the grave, that he has authority over everything, even death, and that today is ruling and reigning for all eternity at the right hand of God. So they came to proclaim this message, likely multiple times in each city. And what we see is that there is always a divided response. Some people are hearing it, and there's repentance and faith in Jesus. 
But while there's repentance for some, there's resistance in others. And you see this opposition even grow. And towards the end of Acts uh, 13, verses 49 and 50, you see it kind of summarizes this juxtaposition quite nicely for us. It says, verse 49, the word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. Amazing. Very next verse. But the Jews incited the prominent God-fearing woman and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. This, this was the pattern. And so that's where we're finding ourselves in Acts 14 as we look at the first seven verses. Let's read them together. We see it happening again. Now they've been kicked out of that area. They're now in Iconium, and it says this. In Iconium, Iconium they entered the Jewish synagogue as usual and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews, again, stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they stayed there a long time and spoke boldly for the Lord, who testified to the message of His grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. But the people of the city were divided, some siding with the Jews and others with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they found out about it and they fled to the Laconian towns of Lystra and Derby and to the uh, surrounding countryside. There they continued preaching the gospel. So as I said, there's this divided response, and you can see it again. Some repenting, believing, others resisting, and the opposition would even wind up, and their lives would be threatened, and they'd be forced to leave that city and go to a new one where the whole thing would happen again. And just as we work through this first uh, section, the city of uh, Iconium and what happened here, there's a few things I want us to bank and be encouraged by as we look at how the gospel perseveres against all opposition and the first thing is just simply this but this kind of missional living that we see in in Barnabas and Paul is not just for the history books it's actually for us today I, I find it incredibly stirring and challenging as I see that their faith in stepping out leaving their families behind their jobs everything they knew to give their lives for the sake of the gospel it's incredibly stirring it's radical we'd call it radical some of us might even think they're crazy to live like this it, it, it should be a serious challenge for us and i think we have to ask the question simply what what is compelling them to live this way like why would they give up everything to do this and multiple reasons i'm sure but here's one thing utterly clear front you can see it because they're so convinced of this they're convinced that what people need more than anything is the message of the gospel. They're convinced of it. They're not going for other reasons, just to encourage them, tap on the back, give them a bit of a pep talk, you know, Joel Austin style. They're convinced that people need the message of forgiveness of sins in Jesus and what he's done to rescue us. And so there's a sense of urgency to go and tell them about this good news. And that, again, that conviction leads to that urgency, which leads to a radical life and radical living. 
they're being driven by this conviction that people need the message of forgiveness and that Jesus can heal us from all our brokenness. They're not being driven by, I'm right and you're wrong. They're not being driven by, you better get your act together. God's coming to smite you, sort yourselves out. No, they're coming with compassion, like shepherds who you see, like Jesus felt. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They're coming with broken hearts, desperate for people to get this good news of what awaits them when they put their faith and trust in Jesus. They're compassionate. And I think that flies in the face and challenges our complacency, doesn't it? I think so often we, we just uh, we, we settle for less. And I think that we have sometimes bought into this lie that it's, it's more loving not to uh, speak about Jesus. Like we don't want to be that guy, right? We don't want to be that guy. Uh, and of course, there's a way to do it. And we're not trying to offend people, but we're not in control of how people respond. But at a deeper level, I do want to just ask us, and I've been so, as I said, challenged with this this week. Are we really convinced that what people need more than anything is Jesus? Are we convinced people need Jesus more than their next breath? Or have we lost our conviction of the gospel? On the back of that, what I want to encourage us with is simply this. As we think about the radical living of Barnabas and Paul, here is the thing for every one of us as Christians. Uh, the gospel doesn't only save, right? So we need a conviction, a fresh conviction, maybe even today, of the salvation in the gospel. The gospel, what we're seeing here, is the gospel doesn't only save, it also sins. And so if you're a Christian, my friends, you're a missionary. The gospel puts it, uh, I mean, the Bible makes it very clear. Even in 2 Corinthians 5, it says you're an ambassador for Christ. There, there's lots of descriptions given to describe the call we've been given. We are sent ones. And the, and the truth for us again today, uh, as convicting and as challenging as it may be, is that God has made you and I missionaries and given us a mandate to share his message. The world needs the gospel. Even greater than this, though, the emphasis of this of these verses I'm seeing is not just Paul and Barnabas' heart to be on mission. It's more God is the ultimate missionary God, and he is hounding down his people, and we'll find them. Nothing can come against the gospel. God is committed to building his church. And you can see it again. Paul and Barnabas, they forced again in Iconium now, like it just happened at the end of chapter 13. Now it's happening again in, this, in these verses. They're forced to now leave because there's a hit on their lives. And there's just this pattern. There's attempt after attempt to squash the gospel and kill the church. And there's massive opposition and resistance to what God is doing. But the gospel advances regardless of whatever resistance is in the way, because no one can stop what God is doing. They came to disrupt the preaching of the word, to kill Paul, to tear down the church. They couldn't do it. And uh, I was just so encouraged. I was, I was thinking about our history as a church, because we've, of course, every church experiences this, even to, even to this day, we experience opposition of various kinds. And I remember when we... Um, about 10 or 11 years ago, came with a team to 
like restart this church uh, at our church building. That church had basically died. And uh, they asked a bunch of us from Rosebank Union to come and restart this church. So about 40 of us came to do that. And I think the neighbors have got, had gotten used to quiet Sunday mornings. So, of course, we roll in there with worship and singing. And they were so vibrant and the Lord was just with us. But not everyone loved it. The neighbors particularly didn't love it. And there was uh, one guy just behind the church who was quite vocal and had, there was quite a lot of opposition from him. And there was a bit of a barney between him and us for a while. It was quite complicated. There was massive uh, tension and a lot of resistance. Fast forward a few years, that same guy sitting in the church and God has saved him and turned his life around. And his heart is softened both to God and to us as a people. It's beautiful. This is what God does. He overcomes every resistance and, and breaks in and saves. Uh, he's, of course, moved to Craigle Park now, but um, moved out of the, the noise level zone. But this is what God does. Nothing can overcome the, the advance of the gospel. No opposition. And maybe just at a personal level for maybe some of us this morning. Where are you at in your receptivity levels to, to the Lord this morning? Is there any sort of resistance in your heart? Maybe as, as, as we've kind of prayed and, and said this morning, maybe some of us are believing in the forgiveness of sins in Jesus for the first time this morning. Uh, maybe there's still resistance in your heart. Maybe you know someone who, who, who seems resistant to God's grace. Um, I just want to encourage us by telling you a beautiful testimony and reading you, actually, the testimony of a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis. This is his conversion testimony. This is what he says about how he was at in his resistance levels to God's grace. He says, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I love that, don't you? reluctant convert. It's like God is going to break in. And uh, as I said this morning, if that's you this morning, would we surrender to the incredible kindness and grace of God? There's nothing better. But uh, again, if we know people, and we all know people like this, can we commit ourselves to praying them all the way home? God will continue to advance the gospel, maybe even in their lives. Let's keep trusting God for that. So God the gospel perseveres despite opposition. As we move on in chapter 14, the second thing is that the gospel perseveres despite oppression. And uh, they have now had to once again uh, flee another city, Iconium, and now they've come to Lystra. Let's read from verse 8. So it says, In Lystra a man was sitting who was without strength in his feet had never walked, and had, had, had been lame from birth. He listened as Paul spoke, and after looking directly at him and seeing that he had faith to be healed, 
Paul said in a loud voice, Stand up on your feet. And he jumped up and began to walk around. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted, saying in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, who, whose temple was just outside the town, brought bulls and wreaths to the gates because he intended with the crowds to offer sacrifice. So it's quite an amazing little adventure. It starts off with this healing. And, and this is something you can, we're going to see throughout the book of Acts. God gave, it would seem, a, a, like a special uh, ability to heal to the apostles that was always linked to the preaching of the gospel um, because it was, it was like especially for this time. It, it, God enabled them to perform miracles and healings as a kind of foundation for the preaching of the gospel uh, to give the the apostles credibility and authority and to help the people like listen up god's going to say something here let's listen to what it is as people would uh, listen to the preaching of the gospel so god enabled it to kind of help the church get going and we believe it continues to this day but it was especially maybe for this time and uh, just for some context for this city is that this this they had no jewish background here there was no Jewish culture. There were no Jews, as we know, in this city at this point. Uh, they were a Roman city with a bit of a Greek culture. And the only reference point for spiritual things was Greek mythology. And so there was a, um, a kind of local legend in the Greek uh, framework that many, many moons ago, apparently, the gods descended to this region uh, in the form of Zeus and Hermes, seeking... Uh, hospitality from the people and everyone in the town rejected them except for one old couple and uh, the gods responded by blessing these this old couple by turning their little home into a amazing temple and all beautiful but everyone else who rejected them got the punishment of a flood which absolutely annihilated the city and so it would seem some of the superstitious people of this a town want to escape this disaster and so their framework is like oh my word maybe uh maybe the gods have come to visit us once again let's get it right this time guys let's let's bring the bulls and have a feast to have a like a spit bry and bring you know a wreath to crown them and honor them and of course paul and barnabas try to make things clear and and we'll look at it a, a bit later but he basically says guys we're just human there's nothing special about us this isn't about us. It's about the God who did this so that you would listen to his message. And uh, they couldn't really get a word out. And there was still a great deal of uh, confusion. And I, I think just as I've been reflecting on this point, I don't think, I mean, on one level, it was maybe just cultural confusion. And we'll look at more of this kind of thing as we get to Act 17 next year. But I think we have to bank again that there is a kind of spiritual oppression at work here. Um, and I think in a few ways. Firstly, that there's an oppression, a spiritual oppression against the people of Lystra. That, let's make no mistake, Satan is keeping their eyes blind. Paul and Barnabas have come. They've preached the gospel likely multiple times already. 
still not listening. There's a there's a, a healing to help them kind of shake them to get their attention of their ears. They respond by thinking it's the Greek gods. Paul then breaks out into a sermon in verses 14 to 17, telling them it's not about us. It's about the God who is revealing himself to you. Listen up. They won't listen to it. And it goes on without little progress, it would seem. And I just want us to bank this, that behind their own uh, lack of understanding is an evil one who is at war to keep their ears deaf. And it's still true for us today. We are facing a spiritual battle with the war going on. Satan is determined to keep the ears and eyes of this city, of the world, of the nations, deaf and blind to the good news of the gospel. And there's an oppression even against them that in the light of these missionaries coming with the good news and the light of the gospel, there is a blindness that they can't see it. There is also an oppression on Paul and Barnabas themselves. The, the spiritual attack ramps up. Having tried to clarify, guys, we're not Zeus and Hermes. This is what's true. Verse 19 and 20, you see how they respond. And it's not just there. Now, apparently, we see some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. So there's literally now a hit on their lives. Guys have come from the other cities to try and find them in this new city to put an end to this gospel preaching. And it says, when they won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went into the town. The next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. Again, what's behind the crowds who stoned Paul? I think again, we can safely say it's not just an angsty crowd or angry Jews. Ultimately, there's an evil one who's come to seek and kill and destroy and try to squash the advance of the gospel. But again, nothing can do that. The gospel will advance. Last thing, the spiritual oppression is not just against the city, not just against Paul and Barnabas. It's ultimately against the gospel. And I think there is something for us in this that the whole scene of Paul, uh, um, Paul and Barnabas being called Hermes and Zeus, I think is actually an attack on the gospel itself or, or an attempt. It's not simply a cultural misunderstanding. I think at a far deeper level, it's kind of a demonic attempt to distract and derail the message of the gospel going forward in this city. And uh, that's why Paul and Barnabas don't entertain it. They have to reject it and they have to clarify and they have to say, no, guys, that's wrong. This is what's right. They don't play games with it because they know it'll be like a Trojan horse that sneaks in and it'll ultimately undermine the gospel. It's not Jesus plus Greek mythology. It's not Jesus plus African ancestral worship. It's not Jesus plus Buddhism. It's not Jesus plus Hinduism. It's not Jesus plus. It's Jesus. That's true for us too today. There's lots of other ideas. I haven't heard of Zeus and Hermes in a while, but there's a lot of other ideas of, of what is true. And, and they're rival ideas that are anti-gospel. And I think again, ultimately attempts to keep people spiritually blind and deaf and dead by the evil one. There is no life but in Jesus. Jesus even said it, didn't he? He said, 
uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so, friends, we, we cannot believe this lie that all roads lead to the Father. Jesus didn't allow that as an option. Jesus himself didn't allow that as an option. There's an exclusivity to the gospel. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. But in the same breath, how good is this news? There's an inclusivity to the exclusivity of the gospel. Because while Jesus says, there's no one, no gods but me, he also says, come to me. And he says, Whoever, whosoever believes, come to me all who... Uh, um, what was it? I'm, I'm having a blank. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right, we got there eventually. Matthew eleven twenty eight. So there are no gods but Jesus, and the good news here for us, what we are being demonstrated, what are we, what are we being shown by the example of Paul and Barnabas here, it is the temptation that we all face, that there will be a, a pressure to compromise theologically. There will be a pressure to compromise theologically and it'll end up being a dilution of the gospel and it'll end up undermining the gospel. This even happens in churches, right? You just have to walk into a cum books and see the books on display to know that, you know, the full gospel alone isn't necessarily what's being proclaimed. Like we believe in the five solas. Doug kind of mentioned it the other day that salvation is by grace alone in faith alone, in Christ alone, based on Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. We love that stuff. It's what the Bible teaches. And any attempt to compromise on that theology is really the only trick in the book that Satan actually has. And I'll just demonstrate it uh, quickly. In Genesis 3, we see, you know, the, the fruit. And the whole trick of Satan is to say, did God really say and causes Eve to doubt God's clear word. Again, you fast forward to Jesus in the desert, and there's temptations on Jesus, and the whole um, strategy of Satan is to say to Jesus, did God really say? Did really God, God really say that? Did he say that to, to say that? Jesus responds, of course, by showing us, yes, he did, and here's the Bible verse for it. But the whole strategy of Satan is to cause us to doubt what God has made clear. And I think we need to be aware of that. The, the, even, even if we don't recognize it as such, there's an attempt in our culture for us to kind of hear that. Like, did God really say? And for us to maybe question what God has made clear in his word about the absolute and exclusive but beautiful and invitational grace of God in the gospel. All right, so there's a call for us towards gospel fidelity and resisting gospel compromise. Once again, here I want to encourage us. All of these attempts, both then and today, spiritual attacks, spiritual oppression, to keep people blind, to nullify the gospel, to undermine its message, will not succeed because God cannot be stopped. He's greater than all these things. And so Barnabas and Paul resist the temptation to compromise. They stand firm. They stay faithful to the mission, message and mission of the gospel at great cost to themselves. At great cost to themselves. They nearly lose their life, their lives. And so in the light of all of these oppressions and, uh, and the opposition and the hits on their life, 
what happens towards the end of Acts 14? What is, uh, how do Paul and Barnabas respond to this? It's a bit of a turning point in the passage, and this is where I want us to go for the last 10 or so minutes as we land this plane, is to, is to see the beauty of it. And here's the question. In the face of the continued persecution that these Christians will face and will continue to face, what is the best strategy to help them stay strong and stay together in the gospel? What does Paul and Barnabas do? What do they do? They plant churches. They plant churches. Uh, if, if you're not familiar with that term, church planting just means starting new churches and establishing new churches. That's all we mean by that. And this isn't Paul's clever strategy. This, the, the church is God's idea. Persecution will come for believers. The history confirms this. God's mission didn't die and Christians didn't disappear. And a massive part of that is because of the commitment and beauty and love for the local church in every community. As Christians protect one another, love one another, help one another. We're better together. And Paul understood this. So the third thing for us this morning is that the gospel perseveres through healthy churches. Let's read together from verse 21 to 28. It says, After they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them, it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And they kind of say it as like a by the way, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, so they've established churches already, and prayed with them with fasting, they committed them to the Lord to whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. After they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. From there they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. After they arrived and gathered the church together, they reported everything God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a considerable amount of time with the disciples there. See, this idea of establishing churches, as I said, it's not Paul's idea. God loves the church. It's not some religious thing we created, some institutional thing. This is something God had imagined long before the foundation of the world. The church is his idea. And I think it's important for us here that Barnabas and Paul's missionary trip wasn't only about evangelism and salvations and making converts, of course, they were doing this and it was amazing, but they understand that there is no good in making a convert that stays an isolated believer. What we need is now a Christian community to help us go the distance. And so they then go, having made disciples, they go and start churches and church communities for these guys to love one another with and gather one uh, together with. They understand the threat of isolation and individualism 
they understand the importance of being part of Christian community and, and that being part of Christian community and being a Christian go together. They're tethered together inseparably. The Bible doesn't know anything else. And I think it's just so important for us to come back to the context of what we're seeing here. And again, I'll just ask us this question. If Paul and Barnabas understood that the necessity of starting churches and establishing churches for these Christians in this area, that they needed to do that for them to stand firm in their faith against all the forces working against them. How can we expect to endure and grow if we have a casual relationship with Christian community? And uh, again, no judgment, there's no legalism, there's grace and freedom in the gospel. But I think it's clear here, there is such an important importance and emphasis on the local church. Casual relationship with, with church, it, it just sets us on a path to ruin. And I, I think some of us know the pain of seeing this happening with some of the people we love. There, there's a kind of, uh, like, a, a, I don't know what word to use, yeah, casualness with Christian community that has led them to spiritual compromise that have led them to spiritual collapse that has led to some kind of spiritual casualty. And we just don't want to see that. And so Paul establishes churches here, and I think it's clear to see, given what these Christians have experienced in Acts, the church is two things, at least. It's a refuge for the weary, and it's a hospital for the broken. It's a refuge for the weary, and it's a hospital for the broken. That's why we need each other. We're not going to make it alone. Life's not going to be easy. Paul, it even says there, as, as it's wrapping up, in that last section, verse 22, Paul makes a point to tell the church before he goes, guys, life's going to be hard. You're going to experience hardships. That's why you need the church. To be a refuge when you're weary and to be a hospital when you're broken. And that's my kind of my hope and prayer for us as a community. And if you're looking in this morning, that's who we want to be. In a culture that is exhausted and weary, this church would be a, weary, a refuge. And that in a culture and a world that is broken and messy, that this church would feel like a hospital. We, we need one another. We need to stick together when it gets tough. And, and I believe that that is sometimes the greatest testimony to our watching world. In fact, Jesus says that in John 17, how we love one another. The church will, uh, the world will know because of how we love one another. The gospel endures and perseveres through local church commitments. So that's why Paul and Barnabas established churches and appoint elders. The world needs the gospel. The Christian needs the church. We need each other to keep rooted in the gospel. And uh, I started this thing with a whole story about trees. I'm going to end with trees. It's a tree day. Uh, who knows what the tallest living tree is? Yeah, yeah. Alrighty, while well, you can see it. It's uh, there, the redwood, the Hyperion redwood. On the right-hand side, you can see how massive that is compared to uh, Big Ben and, and a few other trees there in the space shuttle. It's about 115 meters tall, the tallest redwood. It's massive. Now, here's the interesting thing about the redwood, is that 
the redwoods roots are only about three meters deep. It's about this deep. So 115 meters high and roots that are only about this deep. So how do they stand firm? How do they stay upright? Well, it's, it's, it's quite amazing. They actually spread sideways and they lock arms with the roots of other trees. So other redwoods, other trees, that's how they anchor themselves. And of course, church, isn't this a picture of how the church works? Of all the opposition, from all the oppression, from everything the gospel faces, from everything we have faced of it as a church, son, everything you will face in your spiritual walk. Let's be redwoods. It's what the church is. We're linking arms with one another in the gospel, helping one another go the distance, stand firm, stay the course without compromise, without losing our way. If uh, you're feeling that this morning or you're feeling squeezed, the call to endure isn't a call to endure, to, uh, isn't a call to endure alone. Uh, we want to be a church pressing in together, built on the gospel, carried along by God's Spirit, encouraged by His love and care for us. Uh, let's pray together and then we'll come to the table. Father, thank you. This morning we get to remember, as we look at this first missions trip, that nothing can stop the advance of the gospel. We love that, God. We love that you continue even today, breaking into new neighborhoods, new cities, new nations, that you are turning dead heart to life and, and making deaf ears open and uh, opening blind eyes to see the good news of the gospel. And Father, we pray that again, even for Parkhurst, even for the parks, even for Joburg, the city we live in, the city we love. God, would you continue advancing the gospel? We long to see friends and family who don't believe in you, who we love. Yeah. And we pray, God, that you would do that. We pray that you would work in the fertile or in the soil of their hearts to make it receptive and fertile for the planting of the gospel. We pray, God, you'd remind us that we are not just recipients of the gospel, but also missionaries for the sake of the gospel. And that you would empower us and help us naturally bring Jesus into the conversations because he's changed our life. Jesus, you have changed our lives. And we, want, we, we recommend the things we love. We love nothing more than you. The world needs nothing more. And that you are committed to breaking in and seeking and saving the lost. You haven't changed. We thank you for that this morning. We pray that you would help us again love the local church. Uh, if it's this one or, or if there are those visiting and from another one, we just pray, God, that you would uh, help us lean in together, that we would actually be a community who feels helped and loved on and encouraged, and that we would put our arms around each other's shoulders and charge the hill towards you together, helping each other go the distance, stand firm, without losing our way, uh, without losing our why, without losing the God we love. Thank you that you are committed to keep us and that your grace will continue to abound even to this church this morning.